Welcome to another episode of the Two Fit Podcast, hosted by yours truly, the Two Fit Guys. That's right. I'm Jake. I'm Josh. And the Two Fit Podcast is really all about delivering you actionable information to take your performance to the next level in every aspect of life. But mainly physically, because that's all that matters in the end. That's right? what Jake's after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what we're all chasing. Yeah. Uh, but no, we, we have guests on from you know doctors, entrepreneurs, athletes. It's really people that are going to help fuel your health and performance take it to the next level. That's right. And today's guest is no different, is it? She was actually voted the most likely woman to die on the planet. Yeah, which, like 12 years in a row. First guest we've ever had that you know, held any type of title like that. Yeah, no so. kidding. Yeah, quite a quite an accomplishment, one could say. I know, and this was a this was a great interview, and uh, you know we talked about a lot of a lot of things we talk about here on the podcast are about you know training and kind of physical stuff, but today we kind of took a break from that. It's more on the mental side, you know, of how have how you attack not only your sport but you know your business and life in general. She is the author of The Art of Fear, which we dive in today. Um, but you're right. This was definitely like mental training at its finest. We even go through a, t- a couple of uh, like mental tests. Yeah, which during. we were not ready for. Yeah, which kind of like it gets a little woo-woo at times, but it was it was solid. And yeah, it was very good. It was, a, it was a whole new look on fear that, you know, honestly, I'd never even thought about before. But it's honestly, and, and I've taken it with me from there, like journaled on it a few times and kind of gone through these exercises that she takes us through in here. And you notice a real difference. It's like a, a different sort of relationship with your fear that I never would have even known existed. Who hasn't struggled with fear or anxiety? Whether that, I think the most common is still probably public speaking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so whatever that fear is, standing at top of a mountain like Kristen, public speaking, this episode's for you. Yeah, standing on the top of a mountain. Did we even say that she was a skier? Or we just said not. she was likely to die. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what is, oh. what is she likely to die from? Yeah, tell the she was what the twelve time, yeah, like um, women's most extreme skier. Yeah, women's most extreme skier. So she's a total badass. I mean, she still skis all the time, hella skis. Um, yeah, so that is why she was voted <laughs> yeah. most likely to yeah, die. Exactly. She did some crazy stuff. Yeah, I know. So I think you guys really gotta enjoy it. Um, check her out, Kristen Ulmer. Uh, check out the book and uh, enjoy. It. All right, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, coming on the Two Fit Podcast today. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. So we met out at the Bulletproof Conference, and I know Josh and you met kind of in a unique fashion. And we were just talking this a little bit before we hit record here. So maybe just kind of recap how you two met and just, uh, you know, tell that story for our listeners. Yeah, it was, I guess it was kismet, you know. I mean, it was meant to be. We were uh, We were at the Bulletproof Conference in the... I don't remember what the booth was called, Kristen. Maybe you do, but it was um, it was like a foot cleansing, foot bath, like ion cleanse, ion say. cleanse. Um, yeah, heavy metals extracted from your feet. Yes, yeah. They promote that the so it passes positive and negative ions through the water. So it's not like some formula they put in the bath, but it's like passing this charge back and forth, and it will detoxify, you know, different channels in the body. So like your gallbladder, your liver whatever. And the foot bath will change colors, right? Now, this may sound a little hokey, but they will, they're honest with you. They'll tell you that, hey, it's going to change colors whether you put your feet in there or not, but everyone's color would be slightly different. And this was, this was a fact. So I'm sitting there doing a foot bath. I'm about 20 minutes into this thing. Kristen pops down. The first thing she says to me is like, what the hell is wrong with (laughs) with your water? (laughs) Well, I have been there 
for like 40 minutes and I didn't have much gunk and you sat down and immediately it's like, what is wrong? Josh is like gargling <laughs> down there. Oh, bubbles were coming up. I mean, it was, yeah, growing like things. Thing. Yeah. Like, good, good thing you're sitting here. You know? <laughs> yeah, it Gosh. was, uh, I mean, everybody's would get kind of nasty. Some people's wasn't that bad. So um, could but, either of you tell a difference though, once you were done, does, does it work? Could you feel a difference? Yeah. Yeah, well, I've had these done a lot of times, sure. actually. I seek them out. And usually mine is really disgusting. I was surprised that mine wasn't disgusting. And it doesn't work. I don't know that you can really tell whether it works or not. But at least mentally, you feel better. Like, oh, thank God I got rid of all this brown, gurgly stuff. <laughs> I, I think the I've, I was trying to go into it unbiased, right? But that's hard to do when you see, like, all this color in your foot bath. But I think the number one thing I felt was just, like, a sense of clarity. Like, I could breathe a little cleaner a little easier. Hmm. I just, uh, that's what I felt. I didn't feel like some giant boost of energy, but you know, I've struggled with allergies forever. And so I did feel just a little bit of like openness, I guess, in my head. Yeah. I've spent I think that's, thousands that's and thousands of dollars getting the uh, metal removed from my teeth. And oh, so yeah. just, I don't, I don't know if that made a difference either, but psychologically, boy, it feels a lot better. Oh, I yeah, bet. They have a color code too. There's like five colors, like tinges of colors, like range from orange to like greens and yeah. browns. They diff- they mean different. They mean that you're depending on what dye they put things. in there before. <laughs> Mr. Skeptical over here. Yeah. No, but you could say that you were a little bit, you know, fearful of someone seeing the color of your foot juice. I see what you did booth, there. Right? I see what you did there. Um, no, not really. I mean, I'm pretty, you know, whatever. It's it's gonna happen. Every, there was fifteen people in that booth, right, Kristen? I mean, there was. You just killed my segue. But yeah. That's fine. <laughs> and being a fear specialist, of course, I wasn't afraid of you at all. Well, that's not true. I was terrified of you. We expect our fear specialists to be fearless. I assure you, I'm not. Well, she picked it up for you. There we go. I like it. So yeah, Kristen, you were you were there speaking at the Bulletproof Conference. Maybe just um before we even kind of recap maybe your speech and kind of what you, uh, you know what you talked on there um and kind of your book the art of fear etc give us just a, a, a bit of your background you know how did uh, just your life story i was Summarized. recognized as being the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years which means every time i went in the mountains to do my job for more than 10 years i was risking my life to you know cuz extreme skiing is just whenever you're out there putting your life upon the line in the mountains, jumping off cliffs, skiing, you fall, you die, descent. I was also voted the most fearless woman athlete in North America by the outdoor industry, going against professional women kayakers, base jumpers, ice climbers, etc. So uh, I lived with a lot of fear. Like my, my background as a fear specialist is that I was dealing with a tremendous amount of fear on a daily basis where if I made the wrong decision, I would die. Um, that's my first background. And then I also have studied with a Zen master for 15 years and I've worked with thousands of clients, just helping them, uh, forge a better relationship with their fear. Now, how did you get into this extreme sport, you know, extreme games, chasing skiing life? I mean, what was your, did you grow up around snow? Did you, I mean, were you a skier from early childhood? How did that whole journey start? I had completely hands-off parents, but luckily somebody thought to hand me a pair of skis when I was younger. Otherwise, my fate would have been very different. Happened to live in a small town that had a ski resort, and I had the right personality, the right relationship with fear, the right opportunity, eventually the right obsession. 
And next thing you know, I, I actually had no ambition to become a professional skier. And next thing you know, I found myself on the U.S. ski team for moguls. And then shortly thereafter, I found myself filming for a ski movie, jumping off cliffs, and then almost immediately overnight became called the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. And it's a title that I held for 15, oh, excuse me, 12 years. And I was a professional athlete for 15. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <clears throat> but, you know, my first thought when I hear that, though, and you say you're, you know, you're living, you're in these extreme environments and conditions every single day, extreme skiing. Is there still, when you've been doing this for 12 years at that point, every single day, is there still the same amount of fear, you know, dealing with every single day? Do you just become a little more immune to it? Most professional extreme athletes, even today, you know, I've been retired since 03, but we all repress fear in order to perform the way we want to. You know, we take the well-meaning advice of what's out there is that we want to, you know, the language overcome, conquer fear, put it out of our mind, rationalize it away. I was really, really good at controlling fear to the point where even since childhood, I did, I never felt fear. It never even occurred to me to be afraid. And while that may sound like kind of a romantic ideal and like what we all aspire to be, I assure you it was not. Um, the payoff of repressing fear is that I didn't feel fear for about 10 years, but you can only get away with repressing fear like that for about 10 years. And then your life just starts to fall apart. And that's what happened to me. And so during my ski career, I did some things right by fear. And in that I was motivated by fear, fear of not being special, fear of being invisible. And then I was also really enjoyed feeling fear. I, of course, had no idea any of this was going on during my ski career. I was a bit of a moron just doing whatever I felt was right. Um, but I also repressed it to the extreme. And that's kind of what I address in my book and in my work with people that, like I said, it can work for about 10 years. And then all of a sudden, your life just falls apart. So most people probably assume they go up there, they, they're skiing a certain bowl or they're doing something that's intense. Let's keep it on skiing, right? And they see okay. all the potential dangers. Now, people from the outside looking in would think, gosh, look at all the dangers there. They have to put that just out of their mind. How would you, when you're looking at that, are you, what kind of process are you going through that puts you in a different place mentally than people from even, that have never done it or maybe just would assume what it's like, you know? Well, there's what I did back during my ski career, which I don't recommend. Like the question is, could I have been the athlete that I was without repressing fear? The answer is yes. Like I wish that somebody had handed me my book back in the day because I wouldn't have had PTSD after watching all my friends, you know, get hurt, injured, die, uh, all my near-death experiences. I wouldn't have had as many injuries. I wouldn't have started to hate skiing or burnout, which is some of the problems I had. So to answer your question, I have to tell you, first of all, what I did do that I wish I hadn't done and then what to do instead. So let's start with what I did do sure. is I became a really rigid, stoic, kind of masculine person in order to not deal with my fear. Like you have to become super rigid to be that way. And, you know, the injuries, for example, what do we know about trees that are rigid in the heavy wind, well, they start to break. Um, PTSD is when you go through a traumatic experience and there's a lot of emotion involved, but you don't deal with the emotion. You go numb or you go stoic in the face of it, or you fight it, or you push it down or drink it away or whatever. Um, I, I wasn't, I didn't use drugs or alcohol to get rid of it. I just used my will. 
And um, that resulted in PTSD. And, uh, and then burnout is, I was dealing with a lot of fear by repressing it. And I just became exhausted by that process, you know, where it became my full-time job because that undealt with fear just builds up and builds up. It becomes harder and harder over time to push it down until eventually you're just so exhausted by the conquering or fighting of fear that you just quit your activity, quit your job, quit your sport, whatever it is, just so that you don't have to fight that war anymore. So that's what I don't recommend. What I do recommend is more having an honest relationship with fear. And what I found with, we're just starting to see this now with some of the best extreme athletes like Laird Hamilton, who's arguably the best big wave surfer in the world, Jesse Richmond, best kiteboarder in the world, Will Gadd, arguably the best ice climber in the world for the last 20 years, and a small handful of others, Jeremy Jones, snowboarding, the very, very best in the world currently all have what's called an intimate relationship with fear. That's their word. That's my word in my book. You know, that is what's going to be like fear 2.0. Like that's what we should be going for as athletes. But the second best in the world on down are still repressing fear in order to perform the way they want to. And eventually that is going to take a toll on their lives. So when you say you used to, like when you were skiing a lot for that decade, you were, you suppressed the fear. Was it the fear of the potentials, like the pitfalls, the death hitting, you know, falling off a cliff? Was that the fear you were facing or was it something greater than that? Let's get really simple here. Like what is fear? Fear is just a simple sensation of discomfort in our bodies. And it's, you know, that comes from the amygdala, the, the, uh, two almond-sized nuggets at the top of the spine, determining safe or not safe. That is the manufacturing plant for fear. The amygdala sees a perceived threat, sends a shot of discomfort to the body. And all this is done without thought. And there's a difference between fear and fears, like fears of something. And so really fear is just this discomfort in our bodies. But what we're taught to do is to think about it. Like emotional intelligence in our culture is seen as our ability to understand our emotions and control them. So then we start to think about that emotion and all of a sudden it turns from just this simple thing into this complicated thing made complicated by our intellect, by our mind. And what happens is uh, the mind then can be used as like the sword to fight it, to conquer it, to overcome it, to rationalize it away. Oh, it's just false evidence appearing real. And the mind is the thing that then pushes it down. And so when you, when I hear you say, well, what were your fears? I didn't feel fears. I just felt a sensation of, of excitement. Like when you enjoy fear, which is something else that I was doing back then, it doesn't show up as fear. Like we know fear to be like in our minds or um, in some sort of uh, uh, mental kind of cognitive way. It just shows up as excitement, passion, focus, It takes you into the zone, present moment. Uh, You know, that's what's possible with fear if we just learn how to feel it instead of think about it. Do you follow? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm, Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, where does, where does say like flow states and things with shutting down that prefrontal cortex come into play in dealing with fear? Um, Because I'm imagining even like going down the mountain, which has been known, like reading with Stephen Kotler's work and, and that on flow states, he talks about how. You know, going downhill is, is a great inducer for flow states. And that, I always thought it would, um, by shutting out those thoughts, would basically, 
you know, get you in the zone and you wouldn't have that fear anymore. Now you're just reacting. You're not thinking, but you're saying fear stems from the amygdala. So there's really no way around that. You can't just, you know, shut down your thoughts and the fear is gone. Is that right? Well, a couple things. First of all, if you feel like fear is in your head, that's, that's not fear. That's you thinking about fear, pushing it down. And then that undealt with fear is now hijacking your mind and running its unfulfilled agenda in a loop in your mind. So we talk about flow states. Like, let's look to animals. Like they have a really simple relationship with their fear. Uh, I love using animals as a great example, especially in sports. And look at this, like extreme sports are notorious for taking people into the zone. Like we have to be in the zone or we could die. So look to animals like picture Bambi. Bambi's eating grass in a field and there's rustling in the bushes, amygdala, whoa, perceived threat, shot of fear, discomfort to the body. And then of course, because of fear, Bambi is all perked up. Like her eyesight is better. Her hearing is better. She's more sharp focus in the present moment because of fear. And then it's a tiger, right? So next thing you know, Bambi's running her little heart out, right? Bambi plus fear equals super Bambi, like the most amazing athlete, Bambi, you can imagine. And then fear, of course, is just around for the duration of the scary thing or it runs its course like we're in flow with it like Bambi or like animals can be. It's gone within 10 to 90 seconds or until the end of the flight, you know, fight or flight. And then Bambi's back eating grass in a field 10 minutes later as if nothing happens. There's no PTSD. There's no paranoia that it could happen again. Bambi doesn't need therapy, right? Because she knows that fear, the amygdala has her back the next time there's some rustling in the bushes. And so athletes, if they can just merge with their fear, be intimate with it, the fear actually will take them into this more present, you know, hyper-focused, wise, clear vision, hyper energized, aware place. But with humans, with this whole extra step, you know, humans are a lot more complicated than animals. So we have perceived threat, you know, shot of fear to the body. And then we start to think about it, like I said. And then what happens because we're taught to overcome it, it's false evidence appearing real or, you know, how you deal with emotions is you got to understand them and control them. Next thing you know, we're there's the situation that's causing the fear, the speech, the slope, whatever it is, the rustling in the bushes. But we're now using our intellect to push the fear down. And now the fear is seen as the thing that we need to fight or flee from instead of the situation. Like fear has become the bigger problem to us than the actual slope itself. Which probably leads to more paralysis than becoming more hyper-focused and the, the super athlete and actually using fear to your advantage. Is that right? Yes. So when we start to think about our emotions, then all of a sudden we push them down and they wind up being something that controls us. Whatever you try to control winds up controlling you. Um, it'll hijack your mind. It'll become harder and harder to do over time. But if we learn how to merge with our emotions in an honest way, then it'll take us into this gorgeous place of hyper-awareness, presence, focus, um, all of that. And so that's what I'm trying to effect for people. I mean, this is very, very new. You know, there's so many options out there, things that you can learn how to, to, to control or conquer fear. You know, there's tapping, there's meditation, there's deep breathing, like all these things seek to push our fear away. It feels like a way, let it go, but actually it just pushes it down. 
And you get a moment of relief from that fear and then you can ski the slope, which is what I did. But then that fear that's undealt with just starts to gather and, and become harder and harder over time to repress. You have to work twice as hard, you know, every year, three times as hard. And like I said, you can get away with it for about 10 years and then it winds up messing up your life. But what I'm proposing instead is if we learn to have an honest relationship with our emotions and feel them instead of think about them, then they won't hold us back at all. And instead, they'll become our greatest resource, asset and ally. This obviously plays itself out in everyday life, not just extreme sports. I mean, relationships, jobs, it, it goes on, right? With key areas of life. What would be kind of the first step in somebody to recognize what's going on and then how to channel that appropriately? Great question. I have been a mindset sports coach for the last 15 years and I've worked with thousands of people. But what started to happen is that, you know, if you repress fear, it shows up differently for everybody. For me, it was PTSD, burnout, more and more injuries. For somebody else, it may be depression, panic attacks, anxiety disorders, um, insomnia, under, underperforming, um, indecisiveness. And so this is the advice that I give to people so that you can have a more honest relationship with fear is first you have to find the sensation of discomfort in your body. You want to do it with me right now? Yeah, let's do it. I don't know. Right. Let's, have, let's little, have some fun. I'm a little uncomfortable just, just <laughs> thinking about it, but sure. <laughs> yeah, you I'm getting should. butterflies. <laughs> So close your eyes. And of course, whoever's listening, if you're driving, please don't close your eyes. <laughs> but find the sensation of discomfort in your body that is fear. It'll be there. And we've given other names to it. Anxiety, nerves, worry, angst. These are just other names for fear. In particular, like anxiety is just undealt with fear. So find that sensation of discomfort in your body now. It could show up as sadness because their lines get really blurred. If you repress one emotion, you know, they're, they're all affected. 95% of what we know is modern anger is nothing more than undealt with fear. So just find the anger, the sadness, whatever discomfort you can find, the anxiety in your body and tell me where do you feel it? For me, I feel it right now in my throat. How about you? I feel whenever I think about it, it's just like the knot in my stomach. Mm -hmm. I feel a little bit like at the tips of my fingers, almost kind of like nerve endings. And if you have an old injury, like an old broken leg that still bugs you like that, there may be a physiological uh, discomfort there, but there's also oftentimes an emotional, like undealt with emotion discomfort that is, is exacerbating it. So even if you find the discomfort being an old injury, you know, certainly lower back pain, like just notice the emotional component there. And it's so interesting. I can even ask to, ask somebody to find the discomfort in their body after a nine-day Vipassana retreat, they're still going to have it there. Like fear is with us every single moment of every single day and pretty much every interaction we ever have. It's always going to be there. So the first step is finding it, you know, in your body and then acknowledging that it's perfectly natural and normal to feel this way. Let's just spend 15 seconds acknowledging that it's normal and natural. Like it's not a sign of personal weakness it's not like a character flaw. It's just a natural part of life. And that's the first step. And this can be absolutely life-changing for people to just acknowledge that it's not just me. You know, this is normal. People you admire also have this discomfort, even if they seem like they're fearless. And then the second step is you now, I want you to be curious about your relationship with that discomfort. 
us humans have a long history of avoiding anything unpleasant. So have you been fighting it, running away from it, trying to control it like we're taught to do, blocking it out? And the big word that I like to go with is, have you been resisting it? Like, I don't want to feel this way. I wish it weren't so. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, we resist it. And I have an equation in my book, suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So the resistance is as big of a problem as the discomfort itself. So on a scale of one to 10, you know, just notice what your level of discomfort is. My discomfort right now is about a five. And my resistance to that discomfort, because I'm a fear specialist, is probably about a two. So five times two, that's my level of suffering. So do your own math. And in in particular, anxiety, especially persistent anxiety, is the discomfort of fear plus a whole lot of resistance. I almost see anxiety as just that resistance actually to the fear. So step two is, of course, just acknowledging your relationship, your resistance, and just being, um, I mean, the noticing in many ways is enough. Uh, but spend 15 seconds just allowing yourself to resist it. Just go nuts. Resist. I don't want to feel this way. And then the third step is what we're going for is to the word intimacy, you know, become intimate with the fear, merge with it, give it the attention that it needs. It just wants to be just like anything, anybody seen, heard, loved, acknowledged, you know, 7.5 billion people on the planet. I love to personify fear. That's all we want. And that's all fear wants too, just to be loved. Like I have a saying, our demons are confused about why we don't love them. So give this feeling some love. And all that looks like is you just spend some time feeling it. That's all fear wants. It's just to be felt. So do that for 30 seconds, just feeling it not thinking about feeling it. And the key is you do this without trying to get rid of it. And what happens is what I've seen over and over again, especially somebody that's been resisting fear their whole lives, they may need to do it for 10 minutes. You know, I have people do this for one month, 30 seconds or 10 minutes a day where you just feel your fear without trying to get rid of it. And it, it's kind of like a whining child that's been whining for a while. You know, you give it your undivided attention. It, it literally runs out of things to say. And then the fourth step, actually, and I only do this kind of as a more advanced thing, but because we're talking about sports, this is the intimate thing. Like now feel the percolation of that energy. Emotions are energy in motion. Like just feel how... Uh, it, it can feel like exciting, um, like, like compelling you to move. Just feel the percolation of that energy next. And in doing all this, what are you experiencing, guys? Just a little bit of like a tingling sensation, like, yeah, a little bit of uh, movement, you know, kind of like a sense of energy. Mm-hmm. I know for me, just kind of on that step four there, I'm feeling just kind of more, more motivation, more confidence. I'm ready to, to go out and do, um, as well as like just less tenseness in my, in my shoulders and traps. Cause I know that's where I like to, I like to keep a lot of my stress and anxiety. I've asked 
probably a thousand people at this point, if given the choice, one or the other, would you rather feel happy or alive? What do you think? Would you rather feel happy or alive? Alive. Alive. Yeah. All but two now have said alive because aliveness includes happiness, but isn't limited by it. But, you know, you think back in your life of the times where you felt most alive. I can assure you that fear had something to do with it. Like fear is just so misunderstood. It it offers us so many things if we don't repress it. If we have it locked in the basement, we're only aware of its pathology, its irrational, you know, way of coming out, you know, like a abused child that's screaming, yelling, trying to get out, trying to get your attention desperately. Um, but when we honor it, like we're doing now and we have an intimate relationship, all of a sudden we can see how this fear helps us come alive. You know, that fear is actually one of the most amazing experiences we're here to have on planet Earth. And it's a sign that you're headed in the right direction towards learning and growing. You know, because picture like a circle, this is your comfort zone. Anytime you step out of it, you take a risk, of course, you're going to feel fear. And if you're willing to feel the fear, you know, you do this often enough, you take enough risks, step out of the comfort zone, you know, put the dot outside of the comfort zone, now connect those new dots and all of a sudden your comfort zone is expanded. And so fear is part of the process of expanding who you are as a person. Like anytime you want to learn and grow, you have to feel fear. You have to experience fear. And so if you're running away from fear, you're never going to grow as a person. And we can talk about flow some more too, uh, but I want to give you a moment to just comment on, I've been talking for a while. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was great. I like that I a lot. Some yeah. zen. I know, <clears throat> really. So, how how did you come up with this exact technique, Chris? And when was was this an aha moment for you? And on your theory of fear, was this over these, you know, last fifteen years or so, just kind of accumulation of all your knowledge on this? Well, I got to the point where I had to quit my ski career because I was miserable and I dreaded winter. And which was too bad because I had such a nice life and I had, you know, four different columns and four different ski magazines around the world. I had my own monthly, um, or excuse me, I had my own television show and I just had to show up at the parties and drink a can of Red Bull and I'd get paid. I didn't even have to ski anymore, but I was just desperate. I just, what was going wrong with my life? I couldn't figure it out. So I met the Zen master and I started these mindset only ski camps because they were the camps that I wanted to attend. And I'm like, all right, what did I learn from skiing besides the gratification of my massive ego right? <laughs> and hedonism? And, and so I started studying with the Zen master and he, he had this dialogue, like voice dialogue, and he asked to speak to my voice of fear. And I shifted and shifted. And I'm like, I couldn't find it. I finally raised my hand. I said, I don't appear to have any fear. And he said, ah, I thought so. And he started talking, kind of explaining some of the things that I'm explaining here. And very quickly, it became obvious that the reason why I was having so many problems is because of my repressive attitude towards fear. Um, it is a big, big deal to repress fear. Your relationship with fear is actually the most important relationship of your life. And if you're avoiding it, you're avoiding your life. Uh, you know, if you are embarrassed by fear, you're embarrassed by yourself. Your relationship with fear is the relationship that you have with yourself at your core. If you hate fear, you hate yourself. Um, I love to personify fear too. It's like you're abusing this child of yours. You're 
Um, you're not taking advantage of this incredible employee that you have in your corporation. You know, you're abusing that employee instead. And, and they're now covertly sabotaging the entire corporation, right? And uh, so I started unraveling this more and more by working with this Zen master. And then I started having a lot of professional athletes come to work with me who are underperforming. And I noticed that a hundred percent of the time their underperformance was because of their repressive reaction to fear. And I would work with them for just like three hours and um, take fear out of the basement. I call it in the basement, pushing it down, taking it out into the fresh air and sunshine and forging a better relationship with it. Next thing you know, none of these athletes were underperforming again. They weren't burnt out again. And um, they started to enjoy their sport again. And then I started having more and more clients come to me, not for sports, but for all these problems I'm outlining, depression, all that. And uh, I, I started helping them have a better relationship with fear. And just in a few sessions, all of a sudden, they felt so much better. And it's very counterintuitive if we've been taught our whole lives to turn away from fear or to fight it, to turn towards it and give it some attention and consideration. But it was profound how much this solved people's problems. And then uh, finally, I said, this is ridiculous. I, I got to write about this. This is so different than anything else out there. And that's why I wrote the book. And so that's been my journey. Working with those athletes, when you were starting to see these trends, I know you, you explained the difference between fear and fears of things. But what were some of the common you know, issues with fear they were facing as far as the suppression goes? Was it a fear of not performing? Was it a fear? You know, was it sports specific or was it deeper things in their life that they had just put in the basement? It didn't look like fear at all. That's the thing. It's like we, you know, for some people, it's really obvious. Okay, I'm having panic attacks. I'm having anxiety disorders. Fear is hijacking my mind in the middle of the night and just running its agenda in a monkey mind way. Like that is obviously a f repression of fear issue. But when we look at like underperforming or indecisiveness, like it's hard to see the correlation between the repression of fear and those problems, especially if somebody feels like they don't feel any fear. Um, but we look at like, let's say indecisiveness, like let, let's say somebody is contemplating leaving their marriage and they don't have a access to their fear. They repress it. And when we do that, people poo poo fear-based decision-making, but of course fear is going to be there. Fear if he leaves his wife, fear if he doesn't leave his wife, it's going to be part of the process. And if we're unwilling to deal or feel our fear, we're all of a sudden blind in one eye or deaf in one ear, and you have no depth perception and you don't trust your ability to make a decision. But if you turn towards fear and just like, for example, I could say, okay, how on a scale of one to 10, how afraid are you of leaving your wife? And all that implies, well, I'm afraid of leaving my wife to a level eight. Okay. How afraid on a scale of one to 10 are you of staying and all that implies? Okay, I'm afraid of staying to a level 10, which is a bigger fear. And then the bigger fear wins. It's like, oh, I should leave my wife. You know, when we invite fear into the decision making process, all of a sudden we can see clearly. And so when we find ourselves unable to make a decision, we can't see the correlation between that and fear. So underperforming, the other thing is, uh, like I had an athlete, she had won an Olympic gold medal in the previous Olympics. And four years later, she's about to go back 
And she had had two years of injuries in the interim and two years of uh, maybe taking 15th place. And, but half the time she would crash in her races. And she came to me and she's so terrified about going on this world stage and just being humiliated because all cameras were going to be on her. And so I helped her. She also was burnt out. She also hated skiing. She also hated the organization that supported her efforts. And so she was repressing sadness. She was repressing anger, repressing fear. And well-meaning coaches and friends and family were saying, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. You ski great. Or there's um, you know, you shouldn't be so sad, you know, look at your beautiful lifestyle. Oh, you shouldn't be so angry. You know, these people only have your best intention in mind. And so she was being shamed for feeling these three emotions. So she was pushing them down and it was just tapping all her resources. She was just exhausted and burnt out. And so just by helping her take these emotions out of the basement, recognize that it's perfectly natural and normal to feel them, allowing her to feel them and then bringing them with her to right wrongs and just as energy resources, like emotions are energy in motion. You know, she got out of this repressive relationship, went to the Olympics with these emotions now as her best friends, just kind of helping her be magnificent. And she won two silver medals. Wow. So uh, what does that look like in practice? I mean, are, are you doing these three to four steps you just took it, took us through? Is this a daily practice? When I work with clients, I use a voice dialogue technique that I call shift the game of 10,000 wisdoms. So I don't actually give a client any advice. What I do is I facilitate them into having a conversation with their fear. And then I, it looks something like, you know, allow me please to speak to the voice of fear. Like you can do it now, like find that part of you, that child, that employee in your corporation, if you were, that is the voice of fear. And just allow me, please, to speak to it now. You want to do it? Sure. Of course. Yeah. All right. Settle in. So you're, you know, the the self's name is Josh, Jake, right? But you are now fear and you're using his mouth, his body, his mind to be able to communicate with me. And so you're fear, right? You're not them. You're not Jake. You're not Josh. You're fear. And they have a relationship with you. How do they feel about you? Are, are we supposed to answer that? I'm sorry. How yeah. Does, how okay. does fear feel about Jake? Yeah. How, yeah. Your fear, right? How does fear feel about, or how does Jake feel about you? Your fear. Does he hate you? Yeah. He's always trying to get rid of me. Yeah. He's always Overcome trying to, me. and how does, he's always trying to get rid of you. How does that make you feel? Neglected. Yeah. So let's just acknowledge where you are. You know, you're locked in the basement. So let's call you an employee locked in the basement. So you're fear in the basement and you're down here with no food, no water, no love, no sunshine. Jake can't stand you. Humanity wide war against you. Um, so now you're locked in the basement. Tell me, how do you feel physically as the voice of fear? I mean, angry. Right. So now if you're feeling angry, then you're whatever you feel, he feels, you know, you're going to show up as anger. If you're feeling sad by being neglected like this, then you're going to show up as sadness or possibly even depression. If you feel like you have a self-esteem problem as the voice of fear and you don't even know your own worth, 
then so too will the self have a self-esteem problem. So however the self treats you is how he treats himself. You know, you're, uh, you have a right to be here though. You know, life is a scary experience. And so I'm your best friend. Um, first of all, if we took you out of the basement, how would you feel differently? Useful. Yeah. More justified. Yeah. Let's take you out of the basement now. Allow me please to speak to the voice of you fear 1% out of the basement. You know, just the, the basement door is cracked. There's a little bit of fresh air coming through. You know, he left an unwashed carrot at the top of the stairs as a love gesture, right? Just take a moment to acknowledge how you feel now. Satisfied? Open-minded. Satisfied? What's that? O- open-minded. Kind of like uh, clear. Yeah. Because from down in the basement, you know, how, how do you have to communicate? Uh, you can't. Yelling, you know, pounding Yelling, the door. right? Yeah. Yeah. Screaming, yelling in order to get their attention. But now, of course, there's possibility, hope. Now, um, Jake, Josh may be concerned that if I take you too far out of the basement, that you're going to come out and like a dragon and bite the heads off of every hope or dream they ever had. Uh, is that your nature? Is that what your intention is? Is the voice of fear? No, it's no, to keep them safe. Not. Yeah, to keep them safe. So let's take you out of the basement now. Let's allow me please to speak to the voice of you. Fear a hundred percent out of the basement in the fresh air and the sunshine. So just acknowledge that you're where you are now out in the fresh air and sunshine. You're still the voice of fear. Now, what are you aware of? How do you feel? Uh, alive. Good. Yeah, there's that aliveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel good. And whatever you feel, the self feels. Jake and Josh feel. So we we think that by putting you in the basement, you know, it's a, a power move, like somehow that's going to make us powerful. But it's actually whatever you avoid is weakness. To own is powerful. To avoid is weakness, but to own is powerful. It's like all of a sudden now that you're out in the fresh air and the sunshine, it's like you're here as a aliveness, creativity, kind of motivation, energy, you know, now you can see clearly you're not in the dark anymore. And if they ha- repressed you, started repressing you at age four or age six or whatever, now you have a chance to grow up and become mature. You know, at whatever age we start repressing you is the age to which you've developed in maturity. So now you're not going to show up like a four-year-old would feel fear, but you're actually going to um, kind of show up as a more mature, wise version of yourself. So just to summarize, if we push you down in the basement, only your, your delusion, your craziness, your, you know, irrational screaming, yelling version is available to somebody. But if we take you out of the basement, then only your wise, if you will, holy, just gorgeous version of you is available. So now, Jake, Josh, let me speak to you again. (laughs) We're back. What was that like for you? It was good. It's really like exploratory, you know? I mean, 
like mentally separating these two things and almost visualizing fear as oneself and you as another, right? And kind of having that dialogue between two different things. Yeah. It was helping me deal with my uh, commitment issues. (laughs) (laughs) So how... I have a question because things that came to mind as well were, and I would imagine that you, you see a lot of this or, or have a lot of interaction with people that are seeking help with procrastination, public speaking, maybe some of those types of things where they feel like they get frozen, right? Am I, would that be safe to assume? Yeah. We look at, let's say fear of failure, you know, fear of failure motivated Bill Gates to do what he's done with his life, but fear of failure keeps another person firmly planted on the couch. Like what's the difference between these two people? Right. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. What what is the difference? So, if you have an inclusive kind of um, let's say loving, considerate relationship and I don't think it's usually conscious with fear, then it'll become your motivator. But if you have a repressive like I don't want to deal with this relationship with fear, then it'll become your repressor. Whatever you repress becomes your repressor. And so I see like the guy that's on the couch, he blames fear for holding him back, but really he should be blaming his unwillingness to feel fear from holding him back. Like he's the problem, not fear. If you blame fear, then you feel like a victim to it. But if you blame yourself for not being willing to feel fear, then that's very powerful because you can take some ownership in that. And so for the person that's procrastinating, my suggestion to them is be more willing to feel fear. That's what's holding you back. You're unwilling to feel fear. What, what's that next step? I'm curious. So they say someone acknowledges this, they feel the fear and then they feel this energy, right? This motivation, this aliveness, whether that be with procrastination, something they've put off, whether it be a relationship or going on stage to speak in front of a group. What is that next movement, that next action step to take that awareness and now energy and put it into play? Is it just a, is it, is it a just do it mindset at that point? I feel like what we currently suggest to folks like that is you just got to dig deep and put on the Rocky theme music and will yourself to just do it despite the fear, you know, and that is really hard to maintain. There's a lot of emphasis placed in our culture right now on having a joy or a love, gratitude, forgiveness practice. Like we talk a lot about in the past about will, determination, perseverance, like all of those things are lovely. And um, like a a picture, let's change the analogy. Like imagine that you're a a parent with 10,000 children and 10,000 is the traditional number in Zen. You know, I've talked about employees or these you know, I've referred to fear as a child, you know. So picture that you have 10,000 children and half of them you've named love, joy, gratitude, motivation, wisdom, smart, right? And the other half of your children, you name fear, anger, despair, uh, laziness, frustration, uh, stupidity. Despite your best intention, can you treat them all the same way? No, no Doubtful. way. No, no. So our tendency is to want to nurture and love and and kind of create this like motivated perseverance, will, determination, like all those children over there, feed them and love them, and then push down laziness and push down fear and, and frustration and all that and lock it in the basement. So what I suggest is a practical step 
you know, is what we need to do is turn towards the darkness, turn towards the things that you won't look at. Whatever you won't look at is actually the key to the freedom. You know, we've got to start having a fear practice or a frustration practice or a resistance practice. We've got to have uh, a doubt practice. And what that looks like is just spending some time being willing to feel your doubt, your fear, your frustration, all of that. Being willing to just spend two minutes just being lazy, you know, and going all the way with it without trying to get rid of it. And I know that sounds kind of crazy and like it's so different from anything we've ever been taught, but we first have to meet ourselves where we are. Like if I work with a group of incarcerated teenage boys, like they're in a state of rage. If I try to get them to be all love and light, that would be ridiculous. I have to meet people where they are first. And so first you have to just acknowledge and feel where you are first, which is in our four-step process, you know, first of all, acknowledge you know, your laziness, acknowledge your fear, find it in your body, and then spend some time just being that voice, being the resistance, being the laziness, being the whatever, you know, it is that's true for you. Like, I don't want to do this. So having, I don't want to do this. I don't want to start a business. I don't want to get off the couch, like spend two minutes, just allowing yourself to go all the way with that. And then the second step would be to find the emotional component and just allow yourself to feel all the fear that you have, the fear of missing out, the fear of um, your whole life going by and not accomplishing any of your goals. Spend some time feeling that. And you do this for a month without trying to get rid of it, and it will just organically resolve itself. What are some of the the biggest categories of fear, I guess, that you come across or, you know, basically just in, in society, is it more you know, financial? Is it more achievement driven? Is it, you know, relational uh, people, you know, being afraid of ending up alone, whatever it might be? What are some common themes that you see that are the biggest kind of buckets of fear, if you will? I believe the biggest fear that we all have is fear of rejection. And notice that fear of rejection can keep you at home. It's like, I don't want to go out. I don't want to have a conversation with people because they may reject me. That actually is an avoidance of your fear. Like you're running away from that fear of rejection. But let's say you're out and you're embracing your fear of rejection. You know, like I even feel it right now. I don't, you know, and it's making me bring my A game to this conversation. Like I'm afraid of somebody turning off this podcast and saying, I don't want to listen further or you guys thinking I'm an idiot, right? So I'm like... (laughs) bringing my A game to try and explain myself the best I can so that I lessen the possibility of being rejected. I'd like to ask what um, I've heard. I'm sure you've heard this term a lot, adrenaline (laughs) junkie, right? Um, Switching gears just a little bit, but what makes people who would seem you referenced earlier, the Laird Hamilton's of the world. And currently a lot of these extreme athletes that are at the top of the game um, have an intimate you described intimate relationship with fear. Is a lot of this in them inherent? Like, do they even know they're doing that? Or do they have a fear practice? Or are some of these people just innately? And, and I bring that to from a personal standpoint. Jake and I, we, we will do just about anything. And usually, even from a point of being unprepared or ill-prepared, <laughs> we'll, we'll dive into something because we don't have a lot of fear about what could happen to us. We're just like, we see what could be, let's have some fun, and we're going to go jump in head first. 
are there, you know, there's different makeups, you, you know what I'm getting at? Like, cause some people would just don't want to do that. And I know I'm rambling a bit here, but also you, in our first practice, you walked us through those four steps. You mentioned, think back to a lot of the times where you felt the most alive. Fear was definitely involved. And that's so true because when you were hiking a mountain or rafting level five water or doing, you know, base jumping, whatever it is, those are the things in your life. When you remember back to like, what have I done? Those things really pop to the top. Those experiences. When you have a healthy, inclusive, even dance with fear, intimate relationship with fear, fear doesn't show up as fear at all. It just shows up as focus, excitement, aliveness, those kinds of things. And let me tell you, if you didn't have fear, like in your work or your podcast, you would be bored out of your mind and you would stop doing this immediately, you know? And, and well, I give a lot of speeches, a lot of keynote speeches. And the day that I don't feel fear before a speech is the day I quit doing them because it's maybe not a big enough challenge for me anymore. And I like to be a little underprepared when I give a talk so that I have fear there to help me make me more sharp and focused and present. Um, but do people like Laird Hamilton know that that's what's going on, that that's what their relationship with fear is? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, mostly this is an unconscious thing, especially if you've never explored it. I mean, I've devoted my life to just being rabidly curious about fear. And so I can see what's going on. Like I can meet anybody at a party and you know, when you meet a, a like a shrink at a party and you're like, Oh my gosh, this person can see right through me. Well, I'm <laughs> one of those people, right? Like I just notice people's relationship with, with fear. Okay. Do they run away from it? Do they enjoy it? Like, you know, the ones that enjoy fear, they have that sparkle of energy behind their eyes and, and they like to take risks and all that. And, you know, especially if you're going to do big things with your life, you're going to feel fear. And so there, you have two choices, basically. You can either, um, well, you, you can just, of course, drop out of life and sit in an ashram and sing kumbaya your whole life. You can limit fear that way, right? But if you want to do things with your life, you have two choices. The first one is you can block it out. It takes intensive effort. It gives you temporary relief, which actually causes worse backup over time. And then as you get older, it just becomes harder and harder to do. And then you bring it home. Let's say you're fearless at work. You bring it home and all of a sudden you're yelling at your wife and you can't sleep at night. And next thing you know, you have some sort of issue in your life that doesn't make any sense, like an anxiety disorder or insomnia, burnout, something like that. You're not getting along with your wife. You can't make decisions, you know. And so you sacrifice you know, something in order to be fearless at work, but you're not fearless actually. Um, and there be also maybe some part of you that actually enjoys the fear. Uh, so the other option is of course, turning towards it, using it as a tool to help become alive. Like I'm outlining, you know, everybody is so different. And when I meet people at a party, when I talk to Laird Hamilton, when I talk to you, when I, you know, I can see clearly that, it's actually not true. You guys don't feel fear. You just enjoy feeling fear. You know, look at it that way. And so when we change our perspective about our relationship with fear, when we shine the light of consciousness on it, I think we're going to start to see um, more and more reveals that we may not be aware of on the surface that are going on in our unconscious mind. So who are some other... Um you know, thought leaders in the space right now and what are they, what are they preaching and how, how do you, 
uh, separate yourselves from them? That has probably been one of the most frustrating parts of this process. My book came out this summer and I have written lots of articles. I've given a lot of talks. You know, I just wrote an article for Forbes. I, I gave a talk at the Bulletproof Conference. And, you know, the title of my book is The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. And yet at the Bulletproof Conference, they advertise me as Kristen Ulmer conquering fear. Now, just to reiterate, they say I'm here to teach people how to conquer fear. And the title of my book is Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. Oh, no. Yeah, it's been... Mm -hmm. It's been frustrating and it's been so hard to like just keep my cool and just, you know, like do interviews and, and have people say, okay, how can we conquer fear? And I have to, it's like I'm trying to educate people to use different language around fear first and foremost. Like I love to personify fear. And, um, you know, if you see it as a roommate or a spouse or a child of yours, you know, is it okay? Like, let's say you're my fear. Is it okay for me to speak to you and say, Hey, I want to conquer you. I want to fight you. I'm not going to let you get the better of me. You're just false and, and you're embarrassing and get the hell out of my life. Like, how does that make you feel? Yeah, not very good. Yeah, not at all. Very <laughs> in turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, most of my peers say that that's how we should speak to fear. You know, f take out a sword and fight it fight this enemy, mm -hmm. but it'll take out a bigger sword. It'll win every time. There's a few more progressive teachers that are now advising people to speak to fear like this. Like, okay, I accept, let's say you're my roommate. I accept that you're going to be a part of my life. There's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is. Um, all right, fine. You know? And that's, it. how does that make you feel? Yeah, very, um, not acknowledged uh, for sure. Yeah. It's like, I, again, I go back to like that inner turmoil, just something that's not being dealt with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So then even more progressive teachers will then speak to you like this, like, okay, you're perfectly natural and normal. You have a right to exist. I, I'm willing to feel you, but by doing this, will then you leave me the hell alone? Now, how does that make you feel? Uh, probably even worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, like an ex that just won't go away, you know? It's like sweeping the floor and then leaving that pile just over by the door. You're like, the rest of the floor is <laughs> clean, but that pile, like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put it away in the trash. Just kind of chilling over there. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah. So I, I haven't, I've met a bunch of people that are in that kind of third realm and, and they're, you know, it's definitely a step in the right direction. As far as I can tell, though, and um, I'm the only one that's kind of taking it all the way, and I think this is going to change really soon, um, in that I speak to fear like this, like, hey, I'm really sorry about how I've treated you in the past. It, it just did not give you the respect and consideration you deserve. Please forgive me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life making it up to you. I wrote a book trying to be your PR director. I'm trying to help people have a better relationship with you. And I see you now for the asset and ally that you are. And I think together we're stronger than apart. And um, let's go do this thing. Yeah, you know, I like it. It's, 
It's, it's certainly, it, it requires a paradigm shift, you know, not only culturally, but like every person individually, because we've all been ingrained. Like you have to overcome your fear. You just gotta, you just go do it. Yeah. Be you bigger, get over be it. Better. You get yeah. over it by doing, you know, mm-hmm. whatever your fear is. Oh, you go do it. And that's gonna, that's gonna get you over it. Which if you've ever given a speech, you know, every time you still get scared before. Yeah. No matter how many you've given. It, I feel like I'm starting to really wrap my head around this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do though. You know, it's, it's coming full circle and I, cause fear has many faces. That's kind of the gist of the conversation, I think. And the fear of public speaking is not that you're fearful of being in front of people. It's something else. It's not that you're fearful of swimming in the ocean. It's something else. You know, I mean, yeah, there could be sharks and whatever. You might not like that, but you know, the that's f- a fear of, it's not your fear. Right. That's a fear of, it's not yeah. your fear. But the fears of these things is really something else that you're not facing. If you have a fear of something, that's a fear in the basement that's now kind of, you know, fear. There's a difference between fear and fears. Fears is fear plus thoughts, plus stories, you know, and all of a sudden you're not having that kind of clear Bambi channel to your discomfort in your body and something has gone wrong. Like, you know, you're now thinking about fear instead of feeling fear. So um, let's take it to like Laird Hamilton, if you will. You know, I, I don't know that he is this aware, but my guess is his relationship with fear is, I love you. You're <laughs> freaking awesome. You know, the more of you that I have you around, the more focused and alive I am. Like, let's go out and play in the waves you know, I can't wait to get out there and just do a dance with you. Like, that's freaking gorgeous. You know, imagine if we all had that, what kind of level of accomplishment we could have. You know, in the words of Andy Walsh from the Red Bull Performance Center, um, we haven't even scratched the surface yet of what we're capable of human being as human beings, athletically and just in life in general. And so, we can try to forge ahead with the repressive relationship with fear, or we can f- try and forge ahead in flow with fear, you know, finding a way to, you know, we're so far away from enjoying fear or being intimate with it, at least just not repress it. Like just have a curiosity about it, have a fear practice rather than just more love, enjoying gratitude practices, like really make friends with that child, that roommate, take it out of the basement, like be curious about it. And just because of, I want to give more practical examples like when I was at the Bulletproof conference and about to give my speech, I was really feeling nervous because I was more underprepared than I was willing to admit. <laughs> and what I did is I went outside about 15 minutes before I was about to go on and I closed my eyes and I found that sensation of discomfort in my body and it wasn't hard to find and it was just doing backflips. And I just spent a minute just allowing myself, because I was resisting it. The resisting it was the problem, not the fear. So I spend 10 minutes, excuse me, one minute just fully resisting it. I let myself just go nuts. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to give this speech. I don't want to feel this way. I just don't want to be here, Ah, right? One minute of that without trying, it wasn't an attempt to get rid of it. And then it just kind of eased up that resistance. And then I spent another minute just feeling the discomfort, the fear, the anxiety. And, and it also just slowly dissipated. And when I went in there, it was greatly reduced and I had gotten it back down to, I mean, the really the problem was is that my fear was there saying, Hey, 
a-hole, like get off your butt a week before the, the event and get your shit together and, and, you know, nail this thing. You got to, you know, I, I didn't start working on my talk there until like two days beforehand. Right. Oh my gosh. So my fear was supposed to help, you know, motivate me to write the talk and give it, you know, for months in advance rather than two days in advance. And so I wasn't paying attention to my fear like I should have. And so of course it was excessive. And then, of course, going in there with fear at a reasonable level, it helped me give a better speech. Worked out great. So that's kind of more of a practical um, advice on what to do about a scary situation like that, that is counterintuitive, that works a lot better than just kind of breathing in calm and breathing out your fear. Yeah. And that's something you can practice every day, no matter the situation is, a, is two to three minutes, right? That's all, all it probably takes. Two to three mm-hmm. minutes of just that that uh, mindfulness mm-hmm. will practice their fear and boom, then go out and crush it. Right. That's right. And flow. I, you brought up flow before yeah. Jake. And I, I wanted to just, before we round up here, I want to just give you my version of flow. Cause that's what everybody wants these days. Right. When we think of flow, we think of water and let's say I love analogies right now. We're a hose. And we have these 10,000 states of being coming into, through, and out of our lives like water droplets. And if we're in flow with fear, it's actually been studied by science that it comes into, through, and out of your life in 10 to 90 seconds. Of course, if you're doing something scary for longer than the 10 to 90 seconds, then it will stay for as long as that scary thing. But it's meant to just come in here and inspire fight or flight action. And that's it. And then it's gone. And then there's always room for something else to enter. So if you're in flow with fear in your life, in your sports, then there's always, you know, the, the fear will come and go and it'll just kind of supercharge you. But if the fear comes in and you wish it weren't so, and you seek to understand it, try to intellectually understand an emotion, which you can't do. So ultimately what you do is you control it instead. And then you try to get rid of it, fight it, overcome it, whatever. Hose gets kinked and you are no longer in flow with your life. And then whatever it is that you wouldn't deal with is now recirculating round and round and round in your whole system. Mm. And so you're no longer in flow with your life. And so what we need to do is just kind of find a way to invite both not just the positive part of life, but also the perceived negative part of life to just be a natural, welcomed, honored part of our lives. And then we'll be in flow and then we'll go anywhere. We'll be unstoppable. We are going to be badasses out there. Um, this, this is the key to freedom, really. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, like you said, Jake, it's, it really is a paradigm shift, but I can see how this process and practice can truly free up people to have oh, yeah. greater experiences every day and just live a more colorful life, like not, not behind their own veil, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> Before we round out here though, we have to get into some, some of the more experiences that you've had. Cause I, I do want to ask like, and I'm sure you get a lot, but what, what was the scariest time? I know you skied the Grand Teton and done some other crazy stuff. What's the scariest you've ever been? Oh, well, keep in mind, I like skiing the Grand Teton. I did the first female ski descent of the Grand Teton. And this was during the time in my life when I repressed fear. And I was just very so. And make no mistake, if you repress fear to do these super dangerous sports endeavors. I'm so lucky to be alive. I was actually voted top 10 most likely skiers in the world to die while skiing. (laughs) Um, So I feel very grateful 
like given the Grand Teton, for example, I was just so stoic. It didn't matter what the conditions were. I was going to ski it and I felt nothing. You know, I was like a robot, right? And uh, it was so ridiculously dangerous. Um, it was actually very controversial. Worst conditions you could possibly imagine. Like imagine a 50 degree pane of glass with three feet of goopy slushy on top of it. Like every single turn started an avalanche. Mm, it was wow. crazy. Yeah. It took me um, probably 30 seconds per turn to make the descent. Wow. Goodness. <laughs> yes. So um, I wouldn't say that that was the scariest experience of my life without question, because I had a, a repressive relationship with fear. The scariest experience of my life was releasing this book about fear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good it's answer. I'm, yeah, I can see yeah that. because I'm I'm just radically challenging existing norms about how we deal with fear. I'm I'm like taking on this whole, you know, doctors, scientists, psychology, psychology, self help gurus. Like, you know, it, I'm really trying to do something really, really big here. And uh, my first podcast before the book even came out. It was supposed to be an hour podcast and these people were uh, a scientist and a psychologist from Canada. And I started talking. They asked me two questions. I talked for two minutes per question, maybe. So we were on there for four minutes. They hung up on me. What? Oh my gosh. That's yeah. Just the and, Canadians it <laughs> and, and they said, Oh, the sound's not working. Click, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, and it was Skype and they didn't realize that I could still hear them. Oh no. And they spent 20 minutes just saying, what an idiot. You know, she's going to get herself sued, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, harsh. And then I had a mentor who, um, I admired so much who was in her seventies and she was a spiritual teacher. And, and I didn't realize that she'd been teaching conquering and overcoming fear for 50 plus years. And so I asked her for an, you know, a blurb for my book. And she wrote me back with no explanation saying, absolutely not. I will not support your book. And I got that email an hour after this podcast ended, you know, after the, no. these people hung up on me. So this is, this has been a very scary experience for wow. me. Well, I mean, it's obviously it's what, what the world needs and it's already changing people's lives and we're excited about it. Um, I'm yeah, going to continue to listen to this over and over again, you know, just that practice part. What, just kind of curious more getting to know you, what, What's a daily practice that you can't do without? The practice that I've outlined, um, I, you know, I I'm uh, never worked so hard in my life. I'm uh, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I'm I went from just 15 years of just working with uh, maybe a client a day and doing some ski camps, you know, maybe a, an event every other week. Well, probably once a month. To all of a sudden, 15 hour days, seven days a week, you're like, oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> and, uh, doing this incredibly scary thing. And, uh, I'm also going through menopause at the same time. Like it's cruel to have to go through this while I'm going through menopause. And, um, so the practice that I can't live without is I just spend at least a minute a day just feeling my fear. Yeah. And then it only takes a minute. Yeah. Do, do you have any other meditation practice or spend other time meditate? I know you'd spent a lot of time under the Zen master. So I would imagine you dove into that a lot. 
Um, I have a resistance practice. Like I allow myself to just feel, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Like I said, um, whenever I have a practice, I always have it be a practice in the, the, not in the gratitude or, or joy or love realm, but in the doubt or frustration, or I have a saying that if you're not embarrassed about who you are today and don't resolve to do better tomorrow, you're stuck. So I spend some time just allowing myself to be fully embarrassed about something I said today and resolving to do better tomorrow. Um, those are my practices. It's, I call it shadow practice. Very cool. Yeah. What is your, um, I know you said you're working 15 hour days now, seven days a week, but what's your, what's your fitness and exercise regimen look like these days? What do you enjoy doing? I have fortunately gotten to the point where, um, at the end of a hard day, I see working out as my reward. And I started going down the slippery slope of seeing mac and cheese and cake as being my reward. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I stopped that as fast as I possibly could. And uh, now I, you know, I, I'm not the type of person typically to go to a gym. I'm more likely to go for a bike ride or go kiteboarding, rock climbing at the climbing gym. I don't have time for that right now. So I just, uh, Sometimes just go for a walk or um, I hate Pilates, but I've been going to Pilates. (laughs) (laughs) That's a modern day torture device. Oh yeah. I've become one of those ladies who go to Pilates. I just feel like such a clone of, you know, (laughs) but it's okay. Cause you know, I'm a, I'm a world-class professional athlete. Like I didn't even have, I didn't even have a gym membership until I was 48 years old. Wow. Do you still ski? You live in Utah, right? Yeah. yeah. I ski with clients. I um, I do these sessions, these ther- therapy sessions, Zen therapy, while skiing. And uh, I also have mindset-only ski camps. I work with clients usually on a daily basis. I just finished a two-day live event called Freedom from Chronic Anxiety and Irrational Fear. Um, that just ended yesterday. And uh, I say you know, through this weekend, I'll get you to the other side of this problem where you get your money back. You know, it's like, I love the challenge of working with people and just seeing what we can unstick. Um, And, uh, but just, it doesn't really give me that much time left over for myself. Like right now, I I feel like I'm a lamb at slaughter. Like I'm just willing to totally sacrifice uh, most of my needs, my life, you know, to just be of service. And it's almost like I'm, making it up to the world because I was such a narcissist, hedonist, you know, fun hog during my ski career. And this is like this radical pendulum swing that I just now feel of service to the world and my clients to try and um, help them. You know, like there's just so few uh, possibilities available besides um, just temporary solutions to people's problems or symptoms and I really like to address the underlying cause. So I'm just feeling like that's what my life is about right now. And I'm going to give it everything I have. That's what I live for. Awesome. We really appreciate you being on the show. This has been a great talk. And uh, yeah, I know our listeners, y'all, you guys are going to enjoy it. And I know we did. Absolutely. Go out there and conquer your fear, right? Nah, no! kidding. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if you get nothing out of this, just don't ever use the word conquer, conquer. your fear sentence again yeah i guess yeah, we can't title the, the name of this episode conquer your fear with right <laughs> no, so you want to go out there and 
have an authentic relationship with your fear. You want to enjoy fear. And, and here's my favorite mo- motto right now. You don't do things despite the fear. You do things because of the fear. Mm, boom. Like it. That's my next hat. <laughs> right there on the neck. Uh, so Kristen, like as we sign off, where can people find out more about you? Um, check out the book and uh, all those goodies. Yep. The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work, What to Do Instead. And then my website, Kristen Ulmer, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-U-L-M-E-R. And I do one-on-ones. I do live events uh, for groups. I give keynote speeches. I do webinars. I have ski camps. Those are really fun. And uh, Yeah. Could you touch a little bit more on those? Because that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, isn't it? From a so, selfish for the- standpoint. <laughs> Right. I, I've been doing ski camps for 15 years and they are so good. I'm so proud of them. <laughs> but they're mindset only ski camps. People are like, Oh, do you teach skiing? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> you got to know I how to ski. A ski instructor. Definitely not. What I do is it's, um, I take people into flow states, uh, zone, uh, like help them get unstuck first and foremost from unconscious patterns that aren't working for them anymore, set them free. They're so good. 90% of my clients that come to my ski camp say either it's the most important experience of their lives or it's one of the most important experience of their lives. And the other 10% say that was pretty cool. Right. <laughs> um, and then this year for the first time ever, I'm offering a, you know, if you're dealing with too much fear in your skiing or too much fear in your life, I have a two day just addressing fear camp. So it's an art of fear ski camp and that's in January. That's awesome. awesome. You might see one of these guys or, or both of us. Absolutely. Yeah, one Sounds of those. like a trip. <laughs> um, so we'll put all those links in the show notes. Everybody can check them out there on the page. And um, yeah, again, Kristen, thanks for joining us. Been a blast. Thank you. And I got to say one more thing. I'm doing a lot more corporate events too to help people be total badasses so that fear doesn't hold them back, but actually helps them be more successful. Awesome. There you go. Thanks, guys. <laughs>